Today's passage comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. But, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word, and we pray that you would remind us that in Christ we have seen your glory, we have seen your goodness and your grace. Help us to gaze upon him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, glory is a theme that is constantly around us. Now, the biblical word with which we're dealing today, the Hebrew word for glory, is kavod, kavod. And it, it can mean a number of things, and we also see this reflected in culture, in uh, normal societal uh, interactions and concerns. We see glory in majesty. Uh, you can think of Yosemite, going up to Yosemite, which is hard to get to right now, but it's glorious. John Muir said, Yosemite is a temple not made with human hands in which the rocks glow with life. That's glory. You can think of glory as splendor. When a husband and wife are newly minted, as it were, and, and walk down the aisle after tying the knot, and, and both are uh, radiant, she is beautiful, and he is overjoyed, they're a glorious couple. Or you can think of athletes seeking glory. Right now, it's March Madness, and college players representing themselves and their teams, their schools, their fans are seeking a kind of honor by going to the top of the mountain and winning uh, the, the top award. So there's glory in seeking fame and honor. So here's the point. Friends, we are all glory seekers. This is not a walled-off religious idea. It is built into who we are. We cannot live without glory, without kavod. And yet, and we know this, glory is fleeting when it is rooted in people or creation or the things of this world. The 16th century philosopher, a French philosopher, Montaigne said, of all illusions in the world, the most universally received is the concern for reputation and glory. You could have said kavod there. <laughs> even to the point of giving up riches, rest, life, and health. And yet you see these things that we pursue, this glory that we go after in life, those are all glimpses of the real thing. 
Yet Moses shows us where to look for splendor and, and radiance and honor. And the other meaning of glory is weightiness or heaviness in a good way. He shows us where to look for kavod. And so we are going to look today at uh, this interaction that Moses has with God. We'll also look at some of the, the verses preceding the ones that were read today to give us some context. But we're going to look at Moses' request for the people's glory, a kind of glory. Moses' request for God's glory that he would experience as God's uh, person leading Israel. And then we're going to look at God's answer to both of those requests, those prayers. So first, Moses' request for the people. Now, again, a little background here to set this up is in order. Preceding our chapter, chapter 32 there, Moses was up on Mount Sinai. He is meeting with God. He is having this wonderful, wondrous interaction with God. He is receiving what? The Ten Commandments. Uh, the tablet which contained those tablets which contained those commandments. And he is up there, and God tells him to go down the mountain because the people whom Moses led out of Egypt are now corrupting themselves. They have turned aside quickly, God says, and they are already breaking the commandments that are written on the tablets. You see, the gods that um, Moses is, is being told there by God that the people had constructed by talking Aaron into leading them, uh, Aaron took their, their golden jewelry and put it into a giant flame, and out of that, we're told, a golden calf emerged. And so the people now are looking to an idol instead of the living God. They're breaking already the commandments, saying to the graven image, these will deliver us. In other words, this is where glory, where kavod can be found. And so we're told in Exodus, but also in the New Testament, that they, the people rose up to drink and to play. But friends, this is a kind of singing and, and revelry that is not a worship service. It's more of a rave party at the base of Mount Sinai. The people of God have turned their worship facility into an animal house. And it's happened rather quickly. They are knuckle-headed, stiff-necked, and their hearts are turning away quickly. And you see, what this tells us is that people want glory. They want spiritual, ecstatic experience, but they want it without the commands of God. Right, because that's what Moses is to go down and to give to them. And they're wanting to have ecstatic experience, but they don't want to follow the commands of God. And friends, I think in so many ways what is happening there in Exodus 32 is the people are you know, um, partying and, and worshiping a golden calf. I think it, in many ways it reflects what's happening now in our culture, in our world. Uh, the very well-known uh, feminist writer, Naomi Wolf, I've actually quoted her over the decades. Um, she's written often for the New York Times and other places. Uh, it seems that perhaps she has had some encounters with, with the scripture um, and, and some scriptural ideas and truths maybe um, 
getting to her in a good way. Uh, we're not sure about where she's at in her faith, but she wrote recently on a substack, on a blog that she has, she wrote a, an article that was entitled, Have the Ancient Gods Returned? Now think of what's going on in Exodus 32, Have the Ancient Gods Returned? And she writes about our culture. We regard ourselves. We worship ourselves. We whore after only human works. We release ourselves from all lawful constraints. We embrace all lusts. We celebrate all narcissisms. 2023 and centuries before the coming of Christ there at Mount Sinai. So Moses uh, is obviously frustrated. He is seeing that the people are treating uh, the things of life as though those are the gods um, that are delivering them, and they're not. And yet, friends, we too, this is not just a cultural issue, is it? We are prone to worship our own graven images. And I want to give you just one right now, and that is money. We say in God we trust, but so often it is in money. And what is an idol? It is a thing that we put our, our trust and our hope in. It is the thing that we fear to lose. And I have to confess, like so many of you recently in the last few weeks, I've listened to podcasts and read articles, and I've worried about the loss of future money to inflation, to recession, to cascading bank failures. I've had to turn it off. We, too, trust false idols. Well, God sends Moses not just as a, a person who has a relationship with God personally, but Moses is the mediator between God and the people. And so Moses must intercede. And so he says in chapter 32, again, still background, perhaps I can make atonement for them. Perhaps I can bring an offering to remove their sins, in other words. God tells Moses he'll still have the people enter into the promised land, but that his presence will not go with them directly. Rather, he will, he will send an angel to accompany them. And yet God agrees to keep his presence with Moses. And so in chapter 33, verse 14, God says, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Well, Moses says, if you will not give, uh, go with me and do not bring us from here, uh, that won't work. We need you. You see, Moses doesn't just want an angel leading them. He wants God's very presence. And notice, God had spoken, and this is very interesting, in the singular rather than in the plural. But Moses knows that would not do. The people that he represented needed God as much as he, Moses, did. And so Moses made a second request that clarified the full intention of his first request. He pleads with God not only to go with him, but with Israel as a nation, the nation he represents as their mediator. And he says to God, God, is it not you're going with us that makes us distinct? I and your people? He, he's asking for God to carry out his promise 
to show that Israel is a distinguished people, that they are special to God, that they might taste God's glory by having God's presence with them. You see, another way that we can think of glory to bring this into a more uh, contemporary way of understanding it is we can think of glory as we want to matter, we want to be substantial in the eyes of God, but also in some ways in the eyes of others. And what is the opposite then of glory? What is inglorious? Well, it means not to have weightiness. It means to be insubstantial. You might think of it as being ghosted, not being seen, not being noticed by others when you're in a room, not feeling like you matter to others. Now, I'm going to give you a, a kind of a ridiculous illustration of this uh, from the sitcom Frasier, which some of you know. And the two brothers, Frasier and Niles, are always competing uh, with each other, these Ivy League uh, educated boys, and they're always trying to outdo each other. And they go to a silent auction, and they're bidding on a meeting at that silent auction to meet for lunch with three Nobel Prize winners. And they end up bidding the, the price up higher and higher and higher, and it turns out they both end up spending thousands of dollars as they stop the bidding to have um, lunch with these Nobel winners. Well, in the meantime, they go home, and their cop dad, their retired police officer dad, Marty, who's down to earth, is just doesn't think they're very intelligent after all, <laughs> in some ways. They're kind of foolish. And while they're kind of talking about this, they wonder, why are we always competing? We've, we competed as little boys. We've always been doing that. And they said, where did it start? And they said, well, it, you know, it really went back to our wondering about our IQs and who had the higher IQ. And they said, well, the mother never told us what our IQs was, where she told us they were only two points apart, and she hid the scores. And so they look at each other, and they said it would be a great sign of growth if we could really now find out what our IQs are. So they asked their dad to bring out um, the scores. He brings them out, and they said, Dad, do you think we're, we're smart? And he said, well, based on what you paid for that lunch, I don't think so. <laughs> so they're sitting there, and they, they bring out the slips that were hidden from them since elementary school. And again, they think they're two points higher or separated, and it turns out that the younger brother, Niles, is not two points higher, but 27 points higher at a, an IQ of 156. The mother had been keeping it from both of them all of these years. Well, then they're sitting there talking, and, and, and Frazier says, you know, we need to get some sleep. Miles, you ought to go home. We, we have a big meeting tomorrow with the three geniuses, or in my case, the four geniuses. So Niles leaves, and um, as soon as he walks out the door, uh, Frazier wants to know where his library card is. And he says, you know, I've got to go study all night. And his dad, his down-to-earth dad, always poking holes in them, says, Frazier, what are you talking about? And Frazier says, Dad, he is smarter than I am. And then the classic line, Niles will be rambling on with the geniuses about the cosmos, black holes, matter, antimatter, and I won't matter at all. You see, we get into these competitive 
relationships, we want to achieve, we want to get the fame and acclaim from others, we want to be the best, we are all seeking friends to matter. And that's what Israel was asking for. They wanted to matter. We cannot live without glory, but we need the ultimate glory of God. And so what the Israelites had going for them was not their riches, not their achievements, but their relationship with God. And other people would only know that God was their God if he were to remain in their midst. And so Moses said to God, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? But it's not just for him. He says, I and your people. You see, Moses knew that the fate of Israel was tied to his ministry, that his relationship to God was linked to their salvation, their well-being. And so God hones in on Moses and he says, you have found favor in my sight and I know your name. But remember, this is for not just Moses, but for the people. You have found favor in my sight. Well, friends, centuries later, God uttered very similar words to a far greater mediator. When Jesus was baptized by John, the voice of the Father said to the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And God, the glorious one, said this to Jesus, not just for him, but for us. And we so need to hear this. I so need to hear this because so often, and even this week, we have craved and gone after counterfeit glory. We want to get the acclaim of of others noticing us, others giving us value, others saying you're the best. We want to compete to show that we matter, that glory is found in ourselves. And so we fall short of true glory with our idolatries, friends, with our addictions, with our lusts, with our spiritual distractions, with our anger. And then as we look at ourselves in the mirror, we wonder, how can God be pleased with someone like me? But God says to us, you trust in Jesus, who represents you to me, then I am pleased with you because of him. Moses found favor in the eyes of God. We have found favor if we are found in Christ. Well, so Moses makes a request not only for himself um, or for the people, but he also makes one for himself. Somebody has said that Moses won't take yes for an answer. (laughs) He wants to ramp it up. In verse 18, he says, show me your glory. Now, the Israelites have seen the glory of God. They've seen it in the cloud that led them out. They were uh, seeing the glory of God in the tent of meeting that was set outside the camp and soon to be the tabernacle that would be in the the, uh, midst of the people. But Moses wants more of this. He wants more of God himself. You see, Moses doesn't just want the guidance of God, the wealth that God would give, the new land. Moses is at the place in his life where I so want to be, where I think you want to be. 
where we say, you can take all the gifts, God. It's not the health you give me. It's not the house you give me. It's not just simply the the feeling of happiness and good experiences in life that you give me. It is you. I want you. Not just the gifts, but the giver. Moses is going to the core of it. He is saying, I want to see you face to face. You see, Moses knows he needs God's guidance and his strength and his favor, but he wants more. And Moses here is not treating God's glory as as a means to an end. He knows God is the end. He is smitten with God's beauty. He's not treating God as a kind of genie who is useful to him. But he is treating God as someone to worship, to find pleasure in, just being in, in God's presence and appreciating him. You see, friends, it it is only in the face of God that our deepest longings are fulfilled and are met. When we look at and wonder and we're in awe at Yosemite or we're enraptured with the radiance of, of our spouse or a newborn baby or we're exhilarated with the honor of reaching the pinnacle with our teams in championships, We are all through those things looking for the real thing. The face of God looking at our faces. And when that happens, we can know that we matter not based on our IQs, our academic accomplishments, how much we've written, the people that we know, our health, how we look in the mirror. We know that we matter eternally And cosmically, when we have seen the face of God, yet, there's more to the story. And this is where we really come to what was read this morning. We have to hear God's response to Moses. Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God says, well, no. (laughs) Not fully no, not full stop, but he qualifies it. He says, all my goodness will pass before you. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will grant mercy to whom I will show mercy. God here is saying, it is nothing that you deserve or earn, but my love flows from my character and my choosing. He wants to show his glory in grace to those who have fallen short of his true glory by seeking counterfeit glory. But you see, Moses wanted a direct perception of of God's inner being, his divine essence, his majesty, the fullness of who God is. But here's the thing. Moses couldn't see all of God's glory unscreened, if you will. It would be too much power, too much beauty and brightness, too much weightiness, Moses would be overwhelmed and undone. You can think of this when there's an eclipse, right? We, the last major one we had, you look up briefly at the sun as the moon shields the sun. You look, but you don't even look directly, um, of course, at the sun. You have the moon protecting you, but you still need glasses. You have to be careful. 
It's a brief glimpse. Well, God graciously accommodates himself, revealing to Moses what Moses can handle. And so he says, while my glory passes by you, I will put you in the cleft of that rock on which you're standing, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now, now this is interesting, mysterious language. God is using the imagery of human body parts to, to convey um, his revelation to Moses. And what he is saying is, I will pass by you, not with my fullness, not with the very core shown to you like the burning sun, but I will shield my glory, um, shield you from my glory. Moses must be protected by God, from God. And you can almost say that as God says to Moses, no man can see my face and live, it's as though God is saying, Moses, you will see the afterburner, <laughs> the vapor trail of my very being, my glory passing by, but you can only see my back. Now later in chapter 34, God once again tells Moses, he reveals himself to Moses as merciful Gracious and slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and sin, but then he says, not clearing the guilty. Now, isn't there a contradiction there? No, it's a tension. It's a tension that God fully resolves centuries later in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Moses was always the imperfect mediator pointing to the perfect mediator. Jesus was the one who, who took the punishment that we deserve so that we get God's forgiveness and mercy. He is the mediator who made full atonement so that we can be brought into the presence of God. But it's far more than that. John 1, which we celebrate so often at Christmas, tells us that the Son of God, the Word who was with God, who is and was God, became flesh. And He dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt means that God pitched His tent of meeting with us. He tabernacled among us, not outside the city, but in our very midst as one of us. And then John goes on to say, and we beheld, we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only, and what is he full of? Grace and truth. And so friends, in Jesus we see the glory of the goodness and the grace of God. It is glory concentrated in, fully revealed in the person of Jesus. And this is not simply a quick passing by, but it is something that we get to behold in the gospel, in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God, in the face 
of Jesus Christ. Not in the back, not in God simply quickly passing by and hiding our face from Him, but Jesus' face turned toward us, which is the very face of God. And so this means that the weight and the splendor won't crush or undo us. It saves us. It gives us meaning. C.S. Lewis, who uh, had been an atheist, one who had rejected God for many years, uh, came to realize that the glory that he was seeking was only to be found in Jesus Christ. And in one of the weightiest books he wrote, uh, a series of essays, of talks really, was The Weight, the Kavod of Glory. Lewis said, glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, and welcome into the heart of things, right? The very heart of things. He said, the door we've been knocking on all our lives will open at last. And so friends, Christ is weighty and full of splendor, and because of him, we experience overwhelming, it's been said, meaningfulness. We matter because Jesus matters. And so that means we are to be transfixed by His beauty, His majesty, His weight. And as we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, this is what you need. This is what I need. This is the vision we must have as we face the narcissism of our culture, the lawlessness of our culture, the quest for counterfeit glory in our culture, but also the things that we face personally as we are striving to raise our kids graciously and in truth. We need to see the face of God in Christ and the glory and the goodness there as we are striving to be God's people in our places of work and in school, we need a vision of the face of God which reveals to us, is revealed to us in the face of Jesus and His glory and His grace. I want to end with another reflection from C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. He said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. But it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. But that country's visited us and we see the glory of God in the gospel, in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, friends. Father, we thank you for showing to us your glory your splendor, your, your weighty significance, your majesty, your honor, that all of these things have been made known to us in the very face of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that the gospel would shine in our hearts so that as we have to deal with uh, the darkness of this age in which we live, the narcissism, the lawlessness, the people wanting to uh, turn gold into idols and to trust them, to trust money. And God, as we face these temptations to idolatry in our own hearts and our own lives, we pray that you would bring our gaze back to Christ. That we would know that he is greater than any vista in Yosemite, any bliss that we experience in marriage, any wonder that we see in a child's face. All of these things are but intimations of the great glory that you have shown to us in Christ. Forgive me, forgive us for wandering, for looking at counterfeit glories, for saying we want to matter based on what people say about us, on our own evaluations of ourselves, on what the culture says. God, may we find glory in the one who has come to us. May we be found in Christ anew. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.